that shift more towards civilian and more towards a corporate model. Dad. David, then turn. Scott, that was immensely interesting. Uh, I was wondering if there's a distinctive way that um, that um, what, what is the term you use? The uh, devoted actor. That the devoted actor conceives of his or her adversary. So, uh, as perhaps the mirror image, a profane actor. I'm wondering if, if the adversary is perceived as fungible, just as the devoted group is seen as fungible, as, as mere parts of the greater whole. Well, we find two kinds of devoted actors. So, the ones in conflict situations who are willing to make extreme sacrifices can go one of two ways. One, they can go the way of incorporation, sort of universalization. They try to gather in people as much as possible, and they open themselves up to the possibility that they're like themselves. Uh, you see that, for example, with civil rights movements and human rights movements, and they've been incredibly successful, these church-based movements. But we also find, of course, uh, that devoted actors under conflict situations will, to bring back costly signaling, will start to make more and more absurd defining rituals that other groups can't imitate because they've got to recognize who cooperators are, especially among their large groups and among anonymous strangers. In fact, if you look through the history of humanity or across tribes, you find the greater the conflict environment, the more indelible the signs are, scarification, sure. tattooing, things like that. These rituals become more and more bizarre for the outgroups, and they're unable to, of course, imitate them, and they find them stranger and stranger. So you find it distancing, 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 and actually ratcheting up conflict, and they tend to dehumanize uh, in the end. So you have both sorts of movements of devoted actors. Depends on the conflict environment. Thank you. I have a comment for Shannon, not for Chris, but for Shannon. Uh, I practice the North Art of Kenya, which comes from the samurai swordsmanship. Ah. Uh, and I, I see parallels with what you say that you have to train them to some prescribe, rather than swordsmanship of the samurai was for the military elite that was the highest class. And one thing that has come through the to the martial arts people today is in some forms called the Tadaver, you ritualize some duels teach people how to react to a certain case. And there's a progression from first to second to third. In the first one, the one who wins chops the head in two. In the second one, the one who wins chops off the sword hand. And in the third one, the one who wins just is ready to uh, make a hole through the head that doesn't. But doesn't. And as you get higher, so well, the higher you are, the more you can say, well, yeah, I can kill you. Just gonna let you off this time. <laughs> That's it. As you as you go higher, you have this uh, ability to restrain what at the lower level. You just have to dispatch it. Otherwise. Just a quick kind of comment. Um, I I wrote about the samurai in my. Um, now ancient uh, 2003 book. And so I'm very interested in that area. I have a whole chapter on the samurai. Uh, but also I, I reference um, one of the uh, koans that is about training a, um, a fighting cock or, you know, uh, to a rooster to fight other roosters. And it's the exact same idea, but, but in this you know, uh, ritualized uh, storytelling where the short version is basically they, they train it and train it and train it until it doesn't 
respond with aggression, and then they say now it's it's ready because it's actually the fiercest one. It could kill all of them, but it doesn't really want to anymore. <laughs> so that's that's the point. And and you know one of my um, co-authors on one of my pieces is a, a recently retired 29-year veteran of the SEALs, and he says you know I. I try to tell these guys what you should aim for is to never have to fire a shot in anger. And it blows their minds because they come in with boom, boom, boom. And it's like, no, you should not want to have to fire a shot in anger. You had a point where you, you were, um, let me just get back to my notes. Uh, you're saying about the, the, uh, the way that police responded could either de-escalate or uh, sort of make things much worse. And this kind of reminded me of uh, Sophie's talk this morning, where she said, you know, if you feel like you've been cheated by the entity, then you're going to cheat back. Uh, and it's the same here. I mean, if I, if I think of riot situations, like, for example, Genova in 2001 for the G8, it was a very infamous situation in Italy where the police took people who were doing nothing, basically, and then tortured them in a barracks for three days. And, uh, you know, if you, if you police acts like that, it's really mixed and us and them that would make it impossible to see the police as people maintaining order. It's just those bastards who take you in the barracks and torture you. Whereas if police are seeing civilized people, then you could actually have that. So, yeah. Uh, do you also see this parallel that I so this thing? The more you feel cheated by the other side, the less you can have the dialogue with them. Yeah, completely, and clearly just because of lack of time, I couldn't go into that, but one of, one of the main theories of crowd disorder of how it escalates is you have two opposing groups, but it, it's not just that, it's one group has the ability to impose their view of what is legitimate behaviour upon the other group, and if that group perceives that they're being treated indiscriminately but also illegitimately, that then unites them, because there are some situations where the police behave in a way that's expected of them or doesn't violate these norms of legitimacy that doesn't escalate conflict. So yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that point, and I just I would have mentioned it if I had more time. But thank you. So many. Uh, Nick, and then there, and then Bruce. Yeah. Well, I'm interested in the possible I mean, disjunct between your talkers and, and Scott's. Um, the, what happens when you get crowds of, devo of devoted actors? That's an, isn't, isn't that really dangerous situation where people's Belief in the system, belief in values is being is being encouraged by the 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 actual presence of so many other people who share those values and are willing to to, to, to act in ways which an individual probably wouldn't. But in the presence of others, they'll, 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 they can see as people who are mimicking the same things that they're doing. Then it gets out of control. I mean, taking a particular example of it, not such a big crowd, but look what happened in the outside that Pakistani courthouse um, two weeks ago when the group crowd got together and stoned that woman to death. The police, of course, kept their distance at that point and didn't, didn't interrupt it. But like, almost certainly none of them. It was kind of a case of identity and, and the devotion to a particular idea of what it is to be a Muslim. But none of them would have acted on their own. And so there was clearly a case where a crowd one could almost 
let's call it a mob, became much more dangerous than it would have been if, 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 if people had been individuals. Yeah, fair point. And I'd say that's to do with empowerment, because clearly crowds don't always do, uh, and putting inverted commas, good things. Sometimes crowds can do what are perceived as bad things, but it's to do with the values and the norms of that crowd. And so an example we often use was lynch mobs in the United States in the 20s and 30s, you know, doing horrific, shocking and racist things, but it reflected the values of the deep racism in society at the moment. And even within those situations, you have bizarre instances of normality. And I've seen photos of lynch mobs where you know, the poor victim is being hung from a tree, where the, the term strange fruit comes from, and women and children are having a picnic nearby. So there's this weird kind of, an inverted commas, normality going situation because it fits with the norms of that crowd, which would be reflecting deeply racist views. And you know, most normal and civilised people would be shocked and find abhorrent. So it's, it's not to do with whether it's good or bad, it's what's considered as normative by that particular crowd. So the example you provide is that I would imagine that those behaviours would be seen as normative and men may explain why the police uh, felt unwilling or unable to intervene into a situation that most you know, normal people would go was quite shocking and quite appalling. Yeah. Um... So we seem to have two registers for verifying beliefs. One is a logical and empirical register. We walk across the street, we don't want to get killed, we look and see if there are other cars, if the light is green, we go shopping, we want to find out if our money is going to buy the right kinds of things. And then, but the most powerful things we seem to have are these sorts of devoted beliefs, and they are patently absurd. So how do we convince ourselves that they're not only powerful, but true, in a sense? And we do that through communion. We do that through emotional bonding, which is why all these rituals have sway and music and you know bearing of the throat and prostration, and this kind of communal, I don't know if it's a crowd so much, as a coordinated, rhythmic, dance-like, body, emotional bonding. And when you've got that, then the contagion, the, the contagiousness of ideas is ratcheted up uh, enormously. And you can very, very fast, especially if there's a perceived threat, get mountains of people to move mountains. And if you look at the way, for example, the Iranians have done this with uh, nuclear energy uh, among certain parts of the population, or if you look at Triumph of the Will, Lenny Leifenstahl's um, um, film of the 1933 Nuremberg uh, rallies, you see how this emotional bonding does more than make it normative. What it does is it internalizes it among the people who feel themselves as one and devoted, and again are capable of extreme actions, which their reason, uh, which easily overrides their reason, just like perfume does. But I wanted to ask a question of David related to this. <laughs> okay, apart from a few academics, uh, reason and truth seem to be not all that important for people. What is important for people is persuasion and victory. Uh, and maybe Hume's right, it is and ought to be a slave of the passions. So I'm wondering if your sets of, uh, your measures are actually not a set of measures for sort of natural reasoning. Not just scams and criminal behavior or whatever, but for how people actually reason most of the time. Well, there's a there's a bit of a background there. So 
because I was looking into you know scam compliance and you know researching scams. So the postulate is that um, these are so people who fall for scams are perfectly reasonable people, rational, you know, not stupid. You know, intelligence doesn't really have to do anything directly with it. Um, but the, there are some mechanisms that make you act unreasonably. So there's a clear connection there. So what I was looking at is actually the mechanisms that make reasonable people act unreasonably in a certain situation. Mm -hmm. So if you assume that falling for a scam is unreasonable, and most of them are you know, so blatantly, obviously false, that you know, and some people still fall for them. So obviously there's, there has to be some connection with rationality, but I, wouldn't, I think it's you know, too direct to say, well, these people are just stupid, you know, they're suckers. Um, so, so this was my primary interest. So, in a sense, yes, there is a clear connection. Um, you know, the scales that I'm looking at, or the things that I'm developing, actually look at you know exactly that. So, you know, what breaks you know people's reasoning ability, you know, in a certain sense. So, yeah, uh, I have a couple of questions for Scott. <clears throat> uh, I'm not entirely sure whether your view of uh, devoted, devoted actors, actors of sacred values is important strategically or is important substantively. This I can understand that it is it's important strategically. So it may be preferable to make your opponent in intractable conflict to believe that you believe in what they believe. <laughs> but substantively, it seems to me to be, to be proven that they are really holding bands of their days. And my impression is that, uh, that there is a lot of anecdotal evidence that we are dealing with ephemeral feelings, that as soon as you pull them out of the roost, as it were, is for some of them, these ephemeral feelings just evaporate. So when they end up in jail, a lot of them defect. Right? They change their mind, they repent, they become peaceful. They join another group of uh, Islamic leaders who refer to, to this kind of guy. So uh, that's question number one. Question number two is just that I would like to hear more about what type of hypothesis you think you can squeeze out of interviewing actors. I mean, you are approaching them with, a, with some kind of theoretical. Okay, two. First one is very interesting. Both of them are very interesting. So, values themselves, disembodied from their social networks, usually don't go all that far. Um, for example, if you take uh, supporters of 9 11, the Gallup and Pew poll say about 7% of Muslims worldwide strongly supported it, 14%. Somewhat. That's between 102 million, 200 million people. If you look at those numbers who are actually committed to action, it's less than 10,000 worldwide. In the United States, it's only 500, and almost all of them are um, entrapment cases. So, getting from the values to the action requires that those values be embedded in those social networks, in these fused groups. 
once you break those groups, as you say, the actions can, the people, the devotion to those values can very well disappear. So that's why, for example, the New York Police Department calls these values the values of Prislam because they adopt these values in New York in New York prisons because basically to ward off white supremacist groups and build strong groups. But there's nothing in the Muslim community in the United States because Muslim immigrants achieve the mean, in fact, surpass it uh, in socioeconomic status and education in the first generation. So it just falls flat and there's no network there for these values to be embedded in anymore and the people basically fall out, as you say. In Europe, it's quite the opposite. You know, people in Britain are nine times likely to be poor if, if they're immigrants, and 20 times more likely to be poor in Spain if they're immigrants. So when they leave prison, they're back in networks where these values circulate, and so they don't uh, disappear. So is, is the one non-substantial? No. It's the fact that for these values to tr truly be values of devoted actors, they have to be embedded in those social networks. And one way to disembed them is actually break apart the networks. But are they, are they truly heartfelt? And I'll just give an anecdote, because if you think about what has punctuated human history in terms of values, or you think about Thermopylae, or you think about Masada, or you think about the Alamo, or you think about some of the kamikaze, or you think about the Waffen-SS defense of Budapest when the Soviet volunteer death squads, the things that matter to human beings across history are precisely the belief that these values are real. And in the case, you know, Dar I think Darwin was right. Darwin said, look, moral virtue is not about cooperation. It's not about reciprocity. It's like what most moral philosophers think about today's world, which is the result of distributive liberal democracies. Moral values, it says, is exemplified in heroism and martyrdom, where you give yourself up for a lost cause. Because if you're able to do that, then your society can survive against all odds. But you have to internalize. It's a little bit like love. You know, you can whisper in your honey's ear, darling, you're the best thing my, my fitness calculator has come around <laughs> up to now, and I can smash you in the face, right? But no, you show these massive commitments of you're the only thing that's possible in life for me, despite the overwhelming evidence, and you really believe it. <laughs> and you really believe it. And it's got to be that you really believe it in order to convince others. So it is internalized, and in fact, it is, in that sense, substantial. I'll just give one more anecdote. Hitler, I think I, well, I can't, but I, I mentioned this today. So Hitler in 1938 um, is petitioned by the Jews of Vienna, Wittgenstein family, Richest and Linz as well, and asked to declassify the Jews of Linz and Vienna as Jews, but not to declassify them, not to make them Aryans, but declassify. This is 1938, when on paper, the Wehrmacht is much inferior to the combined strength of the British and the, and the French, and the, the generals of the Wehrmacht are arguing we can't have a war yet, and we need every penny and every money to mobilize. So the equivalent of something like 50 billion Deutschmarks are offered by the Jews of Austria. Hitler has all, the, all these cases examined one by one by his genealogists, and except six. That shows you that he's, yes, he has um, socioeconomic interests, and yes, he's willing to reprioritize and reframe, but it, can, it, it convinces me at least that he really believes. And that devotion to belief, as he keeps saying in Mein Kampf, that is the key to being a true leader that can lead your people. So 
in the sense, once it's embedded, once it's internalized, it becomes substantial and is not just pseudo, pseudo, uh, pseudo sacred value. Uh, on the second question, is there a theory? Are there measures? Uh, yeah, well, we don't have a prospect theory yet of how these values work. But we've been able to show a number of phenomena, for example, immunity to trade-offs, normative social influences, temporal discounting, and spatial discounting. Now the question is, what happens when socioeconomic incentives are pitted against these sort of sacred values? I mean, what theoretically happens? Well, to tell you the truth, I don't know you. I mean, we're trying to get people at the Santa Fe Institute and others to work on the models of it but we really don't know how they jive together. All I can say is, most of the reasoning, moral reasoning literature, and most of the work on rationality hasn't really considered these values at all. It's a little bit like economic reasoning was 40 years ago. So all we're doing now is sort of mapping out in a descriptively adequate way the dimensions of these values. So. So I think, Shannon, you're trying to almost teach sacred values in some way. You're trying to understand them. Uh, is there any thought about how how they how values move in and out of, of the sacred category? They they're normal, then they become sacred, and something happens, and they are less sacred. You talked about breaking societal bonds. Is there any any theory, any mechanism, any, any anything to talk about how those values move back and forth in and out of the sacred category? Can I just make a quick, and then you probably have more um, less anecdotal um, research on this, but I uh, found it interesting in that I was 11 years, as I said, at the Naval Academy, and I saw a shift that uh, troubled me. It's actually related to the point also about um, bringing civilians into roles that had been military before and what that can do in degrading these values. Uh, I used to teach a unit in one of my classes at the Academy uh, that included a piece about the internment camps during World War II. And every time I taught it, every semester, up to like 100 midshipmen reacted the same, which was they were horrified if they hadn't heard of it before. They were horrified that this happened on our soil. Uh, and uh, they were very impressed with uh, the Japanese Americans who um, joined the military even in that context and then actually ended up being some of the most decorated units and they ended up focusing on that. So it was very much, oh my God, how could we do internments? And uh, look at the courage of these people who were treated so badly and yet rose above it and did these amazing things. Then you go through 9-11, you go through a lot of the changes and the attitudinal changes in this country. Uh, and I would talk about some of the top-down influence and the command climate in this country and how all that shifted. And by the time I left in 2008, I had students, I kid you not, in that same class, a certain portion, not all, but a certain portion who would say, um, well, you know, it's not that bad in tournament. I mean, they had to be careful, right? I mean, you, you know, I'm not kidding. They would say, well, if someone could have been saboteurs, how would you know? I mean, they could sort it out after the war, but, you know, the pressure was so high, and it, it, the stakes were so high, they had to do that. They had to make that sacrifice for, you know, they had to sacrifice those, those citizens or those freedoms for security. That, to me, is sacred values being eroded. Um, by an unhealthy command climate and by um, leaking across uh, different cultures, civilian to military, in a very bad way. Well, you know, we discussed the example of you just 
have to disembed people from the networks in which these values are embedded. The historical question, though, is an interesting one. Uh, usually the way sacred values change massively in society is through revolution. Revolutions basically are the population and the, or the leadership decides that these values aren't holding it. They're held hypocritically or um, in a contradictory fashion and the populace rises, and unless they can find a new set of sacred values, uh, they tend to revert back to the old ones, to some combination and try to renew them. But there are examples where there's been a slow evolution of getting out of a set of sacred values. A good example is racial identity. So our notions of racial identity and how uh, what race, what ethnic groups you, you form, your confessional groups, has slowly eroded over time and into a sort of universalist human rights culture. How that happens is a very interesting historical process. And I can't give any kind of particular example. But so far as I know, no one really studies that either. That is, what is that historical process where you replace one value set for another? So I have a line to draw through everybody but David. And if you may all look at me and say, no, you're fundamentally miss my point. <laughs> but. You know, to, to bring these things together, I'm thinking about situations where the police enact things in military styles, like, you know, the bombing of Move, uh, Waco, where they went in there to pick one on each political spectrum. And I can't believe the police that were involved in that are happy about it, you know, as they, they sit in retirement. But it's like almost like they've othered the citizenry so much, you know, shooting the people trying to cross the bridge to get out of Katrina, that they've taken, um, they, they've almost flipped it. They're like, first of all, we've turned this into a war, and then we toss all the ethics of war. You know, it's almost like they become their own sacred group. And I guess part of it is like, you look at some of these situations and the cops have surrounded a house or something, and I'm thinking, oh, the US, what are we, 200 years old? You know, the people in there could die of old age before the, you know, the police aren't around anymore. Um, is that like a, a, a reasonable line to draw, or am I really misunderstanding the situation? Well, I mean, I, I, I think it's, I, sympathetic to your point that if you have groups like the police or others that try to adopt military tactics without the military ethos, bad things happen. I mean, that's back to my other point. And whether that's, you know, the, the CIA or some other group uh, or just a civilian police force, I just, I think these these groups developed the ethos that they have for a very specific reason that has to do with the responsibilities that they have, and particularly the biggest one of life and death. And if you give people, invest them with that life and death, uh, power without the ethos and without the right values, don't check what they're devoted to, then uh, you're going to get you know, bad things happening. I did find it interesting that uh, when I taught about Code of the Warrior, I had police forces who wanted me to come talk to them. And of course, the police force does many times have a value system, but it is not identical. And there is a very different ethos that comes with protect and serve versus military. You just don't want to blend those. That's good, right? Absolutely. Yeah, they need to be separate. And you don't want them blended haphazardly. And I think you're right, the bad things will occur if they are uh, mis uh, misused in that way. So, um, so how, how do we deal? How do we deal with torture then? 
which uh, divides agencies in the UK, divides political parties, divides people in the USA. I will, I will shock you not at all when I tell you um, uh, speeding is an ethicist up against torture. Um, I, I've been telling my assistant I want her to make me a stamp that actually says, like, unethical, so I can just click big red. But what's interesting there, too, is... Uh, and, People think I'm like doing the party line. I have to point out I don't work for them anymore. But I swear to you, uh, when like the big torture cases were coming out, when Wu was putting out his materials, the military were angry. The guys that I worked with and women that I worked with in, in the military were very upset about this move towards making torture okay because they saw this as eroding their core values and they saw it as a dangerous slope. And uh, they kept pointing out, this is not the military wanting to do this. These are these civilian agencies wanting to do this. And uh, people who were veterans like John McCain and so forth who were arguing against the use of this torture uh, were making the point too that, look, you can't start picking away at these principles that we've said this far but no farther for centuries if you suddenly say, oh no, we're doing that now, then it's really hard to get anyone to commit uh, to there being any lines that you don't cross. And in a weird way, it's the same kind of problem where if you start throwing around too loosely the idea in politics or international policy of this is our red line and then you don't hold that red line, then it's, you know, it's like crying wolf. You, you cannot reestablish those principles once you erode them to that degree. It is incredibly dangerous. And I don't know how we dig back out of that completely, but I think it's going to take a generation. There's two very big questions are raised right at the end of the session, but I'm increasingly troubled by some of the unquestioned assumptions that are going on in this session. And one is to do with sacred access, which comes in a second. The first one's to do with this whole idea that somehow a professional trained army is somehow going to be better than or more ethically behaved if you train them properly than not than the other. I mean, if you think about which is the war that most of us would consider to be the only, maybe the most justified war in the 20th century, the Second World War, mass civilian mobilization. And this is when troops supposedly behave better than most other, other conflicts. It's on our side, of course. Um, but you know, and look at every other action by professional forces in the 20th century. Which were the forces that did the worst things? You know, which were the forces that killed the most civilians and everything else? It was the professional forces, the professional troops. I just don't believe the default option is that professional armies good, non-professional armies bad. You guys in the Middle Ages, philosophers and thinkers were worried about the whole idea of standing armies and paid troops. It was a, a terrible thing they didn't want to happen. Well, can I just respond because I actually think we have a fundamental misunderstanding in my position. I actually am in favor of the draft and bringing it back. Uh, my vision of military ethos is not um, to do with having a permanent standing uh, professional army, and that's why I also don't like mercenaries, or as we like to call them now, PMCs. Um, but uh, I, I actually think the part of the ethos is the citizen soldier. Okay. And you actually have to, if you take that out, that is also a dangerous piece to take out. They have to know that they need to transition back to the civilian world. And if that is taken out too much, it is, I think, a problem. So I'm not as far, I think, from your position. I'm just worried about the sort of fetishization of the warriors that seem to be occurring in the room. Well, but I, 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 they need to be a temporary warrior that turns back, which is why my students always said they wanted to be a Hector who wins. <laughs> You're right. I, I, when I use the word, you vote back to I don't see any 
any. I, in fact, I see this is the biggest problem facing our species right now that doesn't destroy itself. Is I see nothing in principle to distinguish the sort of the kind of thing that, that the definition was the definition of evil in the third right. The definition of evil was anyone who denies the necessity of race war. Okay, that was the definition of evil. Okay? Now we have a sort of liberal democracy, democratic definition of evil, in which we also have a madman world of the possibility of nuclear genocide for the point of nothingness. And I don't see, and I can well see, that that could be just as much to the end of the world. And I don't see, in principle, anything in the evolution of our species, or even in the history given its intermittent civilization, that decides which one of those two sort of things that might win out in the end. I wanted to ask you something about the second part of the question, which is going back to this. Um, what is it about the new right, I think. Okay, I think we probably ought to stop. I sense there are plenty of rather good conversations to continue at dinner, so I'm, I'm very sorry. I think we need to stop there. So let's thank the speakers again. Yeah.